Genesis 25, verses 19 to 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I think it was last summer that Robin asked me if I would be interested in doing a mini-series. And in a moment of weakness, I suggested I would do a, a series on the life of Jacob. I thought the life of Jacob would be nicely self-contained. I also realized that it would pose something of a challenge. It's never easy to preach on narrative passages from the Old Testament, because God's revelation of himself and of his purposes is progressive, and we as New Testament Christians know far more than the Old Testament saints did. But I think there are two important things we need to remember. One is that God is the same. God is the same in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. He doesn't change, and he deals with his people in the same way. And the other thing is that men and women are basically the same. The saints in the Old Testament walked, they lived by faith. They responded to all that they knew of God. Now, they knew far less about God than we do, but they still responded to what they knew. And they were men and women like us, with their strengths and their weaknesses, men and women who had failings, who had sin in their lives, who struggled in all sorts of ways. So I hope that as we look at the life of Jacob, we can remember these two principles, 
that God remains the same and that men and women fundamentally are the same. Let's turn to chapter 27 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 27. Amy read for us part of chapter 25. We now turn to chapter 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. And go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy, like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. 
Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. (coughs) Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob, because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while. 
until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? May God bless to us that further reading from his word and to his name be the praise. Chapters 3 to 11 of the book of Genesis present us with a bleak picture. First, we have an account of the fall when our first parents, Adam and Eve, deliberately disobeyed God and so brought sin and death into the world. Then we have the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. That is followed by the flood which God sent to punish the burgeoning wickedness of humanity. And in chapter 11, we have the construction of the Tower of Babel, which reflected the pride of men and women and their determination to do their own thing. It's only in chapter 12 that things take a turn for the better. There we see how the Lord revealed himself to a man called Abram. He asked him to move to a land he would show him. He promised to bless him and to make him into a great nation. The provision of a family for Abraham and Sarah was essential to the fulfillment of God's promises. But it was many years before their son Isaac was born. And it looked as if God's promises were going to be fulfilled. In chapter 25, which Amy read, Isaac and his wife Rebekah in turn have a family. But they too had to wait. Rebekah was initially barren, and it was in answer to specific prayer that the twins Esau and Jacob were born. Isaac and Rebekah were in the covenant line But their faith was tested just as Abram and Sarah's had been. And even when the boys arrived, things weren't at all straightforward. They didn't get on. They had very different personalities. Esau, the elder, was an outdoors type. He became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Jacob, by contrast, was a quiet, cerebral type. He preferred to stay at home among the tents. Esau was rugged and impetuous. What you saw was what you got. He lived for the moment. But Jacob was thoughtful and measured. He was also intensely ambitious, potentially manipulative, and underhand in his dealings. Rebecca had been alerted to their rivalry even before they were born. She was aware that they were jostling um, each other in her womb when she asked the Lord what was going on. She was told that the twins would be the progenitors of two peoples and two nations. The one shall be stronger than the other, The older shall serve the younger. 
Esau was the first twin to be born, but Jacob was hanging on to his brother's heel. Jacob's name picks up on that. It means he takes by the heel. But the name also has the connotation of deceiver. In the Bible, names often denote character. My names mean the one and only champion. (laughs) But I'm sure that doesn't really mean anything at all. But Bible names generally have significance. And the name Jacob denoted a twister, a schemer. He was a twister, a schemer by name and by character. Not only were Esau and Jacob very different, their parents took sides. They had favorites. We see that in verse 28 of chapter 25. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob was his mother's favorite. Esau was his father's. So it wasn't just Esau versus Jacob. It was Isaac and Esau versus Rebekah and Jacob. That surely was a recipe for disaster. In the closing verses of chapter 25, we have round one of the family squabbles as Esau gives away his birthright. As the older son, Esau had a special status. He was entitled to a greater share of the family estate. But Jacob saw an opportunity to wrest that from him, and he ruthlessly exploited it. One day Esau returned famished from a hunting expedition. Jacob was cooking stew, and Esau asked him for some. Jacob recognized his brother's vulnerability, and he took advantage of it. He agreed to give him some stew, but only on condition that he would surrender his birthright to him. This was no boyish prank on the part of Jacob. He made Esau confirm the transaction with an oath. For his part, Esau was heedless of the consequences. All he was concerned about was to have his physical needs met. He wanted to quench his hunger. The cost didn't matter. In the words of verse 34 of chapter 25, he despised his birthright. By his actions, he showed how little he valued it. Round one to Jacob. Round two is in chapter 27. By this time, Isaac was an old man and he could no longer see. He wanted to give Esau a special blessing. The fact he sought to do this in private may well indicate he was aware that what he proposed to do was not free from difficulty. Presumably, he was aware of the prophecy that the older son would serve the younger. He may also have known that Esau had sold his birthright. It looks as if Isaac, although he was, was trying to take things into his own hands. 
Before he blessed Esau, he asked him to go out hunting and prepare him a meal of his favorite game. Like his older son, Isaac set great store by his stomach. Rebekah happened to hear Isaac speaking to Esau, and she then conspired with Jacob to ensure that it was he who received his father's blessing by pretending to be Esau. She hurriedly prepared a goat stew for Jacob to give to his father, while Jacob put on Esau's best clothes and draped goat skins over his hands and the back of his neck to simulate his brother's hairiness. In the event Isaac wasn't entirely convinced, he was surprised that Esau was back from the hunt so soon. He also recognized Jacob's voice. But he quelled his doubts sufficiently to tuck into the stew and proceed with the blessing. Jacob went along with his mother's ruse. He pretended to be Esau. He deceived his father. He was even prepared to use God to explain how the meal he brought his father had been prepared so quickly. When challenged by Isaac, he says in verse 20, The Lord your God granted me success. What a whopper of a lie. When Esau returned, it was a done deal. Jacob had received the blessing, and that was that. Esau was gutted. He wanted revenge. He decided that he would kill his brother as soon as his father died. And in the meantime, he made life as difficult as he could for his parents by marrying a Canaanite woman contrary to their wishes. What a mess. Jacob had won round two of the family squabbles, but neither he nor any of the others in the story emerges with any credit. What I'd like to do this evening is to highlight four things from these two episodes. The first is this. God works with flawed people. God works with flawed people. In these chapters of Genesis, God is building the covenant family through which he is going to bring blessing to the whole world. But the people he uses are not plaster-cast saints. Far from it. They're all sinful, flawed individuals. Isaac is weak and yet tries to get his own way. Rebecca is manipulative. Esau lives for the moment. Jacob is tricky and ambitious. And their family life is what social workers nowadays would call dysfunctional. And yet, God chooses to work through people like that to accomplish his purposes. That should encourage us. If God didn't work with flawed people, what hope would any of us have? Where would any of us be this evening 
We're all sinful. We're all rebellious. We all have weaknesses and failings. None of us can take the moral high ground and point the finger at others. But God works with flawed people. The good news of the gospel is that God loves sinners and brings them into relationship with himself. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says? While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus himself said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. From the very beginning, God worked with flawed individuals. Individuals like Rebecca and Jacob. And he still receives into his family all who acknowledge their need before him and cast themselves unreservedly on his mercy. In the words of a hymn that's not often sung these days, Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and mangled by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. John Newton spent years of his life captaining slave ships. At that time, he was, in his own words, an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in West Africa. But God's amazing grace reached out to him following a severe storm off the coast of Donegal, in which his ship almost sank, Newton was converted. He went on to become an Anglican clergyman. But he never forget, forgot the, the depths of depravity from which he had been delivered. Over the fireplace in the study of his rectory at Olney in Buckinghamshire, was written this quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. There's a famous quotation attributed to Newton in his old age. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. God works with flawed individuals. My second point is this. God's favor is received, not earned. God's favor is received, not earned. The people God chooses to work with are no better than anyone else. They owe everything to God's free, unmerited grace. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul uses Jacob and Esau to make that very point. He says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. What Paul is saying is that Esau and Jacob were both sons of Isaac. They were both grandsons of Abram. They shared the same genetic inheritance. They had the same privileged upbringing, spiritually speaking. And yet it was through Jacob, not Esau, that God chose to continue the covenant line. That had nothing to do with inherent worth or with personal merit or achievement. After all, God's choice was made before the twins were born, before they had done anything at all. They were still in the womb when the Lord told Rebecca that the younger, the younger twin would take precedence. Jacob didn't earn that privilege. He didn't deserve it. That privilege was his by God's sovereign choice alone. Scripture teaches that in eternity past, God set his love on particular individuals for reasons known only to himself and determined to adopt them into his family. God exercised a sovereign choice. Now, there are aspects of that which we cannot fully understand, but we shouldn't let the things we can't understand blind us to the things we can. And one of the things we can understand is that none of us earns salvation. It is offered to us on God's terms, not ours. All that's required of us is to accept it. Nothing left for you to do. Nothing, sinner, no. Jesus did it. Did it all long, long ago. I'm sure I've said before that a basic difference between biblical Christianity and other religions is summed up in two letters of the alphabet. The letters N and E. Other religions say do. If you want to be accepted by God, do this, do that, do the next thing. But that isn't what biblical Christianity says. It doesn't say do. It says done. It points to all that Christ has done on our behalf in his life and death and resurrection. The focus is on his finished work. There will be no self-made men and women in heaven. No one will be there on their own merits. No one will have reason to boast about anything they've done. Instead of patting themselves on the back, they will praise the Father who set his love upon them, the Son who came into the world to redeem them, the Spirit who brought them to faith and who enabled them to persevere in the Christian life. We do not earn God's favor any more than Jacob did. God's favor is gratefully received, not earned. My third point is, sin does not thwart God's purposes. Sin does not thwart God's purposes. Sin does not have the last word, in other words. There's a sense in which God can use even sin 
in the accomplishment of his purposes. Now, we need to be very careful here. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. He's in no way responsible for sin. That's something James makes absolutely clear in his letter, where he writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We cannot blame God when we sin. We have only ourselves to blame. But in a mysterious and inscrutable way, God can use even our sin in the outworking of his purposes. We see that in the narrative we're looking at this evening. It was God's purpose to make Jacob the covenant heir. And Jacob did indeed become the heir, even though that came about through sinful actions on his part and on the part of others. When Esau discovered that Jacob had deceived his father and received the blessing, he said of him in verse 36, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Jacob had acted dishonorably. He had wronged his brother, and he was responsible for his sin. And yet his sin didn't take God by surprise. God didn't have to opt for plan B when Jacob behaved in the way he did. Instead, Jacob's sin was used to further God's purposes. The Lord had an overarching plan. We see the same thing later in the book of Genesis in the story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, and they sold him into slavery. He suffered a great deal as a result of what they did to him, and yet it was an account of what they did that Joseph found himself in Egypt, where he eventually achieved high office, and so was in a position to help his family when famine struck in Canaan. The brothers' actions were wrong. They were indefensible. And yet Joseph was able to say to them in Egypt, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Later, Joseph said to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, the brother's sin was used by the Lord to bring about his good purposes. The supreme example of how God brings good even out of human sin is the cross. There, Satan and a hostile world did its worst to the incarnate Son of God. They snuffed out his life in shame and agony. But at the cross, 
God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There he decisively defeated death and sin and Satan. At the cross, no greater sin was ever perpetrated. But at the same time, no greater victory was ever achieved. On the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter roundly condemned his Jewish hearers for what they had done. This Jesus, he said, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Guilt attached to those who had any part to play in the crucifixion. They were responsible for their actions. And yet Peter could also say that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God had an overarching plan and purpose. There's much that is mysterious about this. But I think we can draw some encouragement from it. We can be encouraged that even sin doesn't derail God's purposes. Sin doesn't have the last word. The God who works with flawed people can use even their sin to accomplish his purposes. All sin is serious and we are responsible for it. But it isn't necessarily a dead end. You may be conscious of gross sin in the past. You may be struggling under a weight of sin in the present. But the good news is that that's not an insuperable problem for God. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and you can go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come or come again as a sinner to Jesus. God's purposes aren't thwarted by sin. Fourthly and finally, sin has consequences. Sin may not thwart God's purposes, but it has consequences. The choices we make matter. The people in this passage made real choices. When he saw an opportunity to, to deprive Esau of his birthright, Jacob seized it. When his mother came up, came up with a plan to deceive his father, Jacob chose to go along with it. In order to have his immediate physical needs met, Esau chose to sell his birthright. He bartered the future for the present. These are real people making real choices. They're not automata programmed to act and react in particular ways. They're responsible for their actions. And their choices have consequences. Rebecca had to say goodbye to her favorite son, Jacob. Because of Esau's hostility towards him, Jacob had to flee for his life and seek refuge with his uncle Laban in distant Haran. It must have broken Rebekah's heart to see him go. 
And in God's providence, she was never to see him again. By the time Jacob returned to Canaan, Rebekah was dead. Jacob's wrong choices also had consequences. We shall see more of that in a fortnight's time. Jacob lived much of his life knowing that his brother was out to get him. He spent years as a fugitive in Haran. There he worked for his uncle Laban, who turned out to be as much of a trickster as he was himself. In Derek Kidner's insightful words, in Laban, Jacob met his match and his means of discipline. Jacob suffered many hard knocks during his time with Laban. Even though God was gracious and overruled Jacob's sin wonderfully, his sins still had consequences. And what about Esau? The writer to the Hebrews warns his readers, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought the blessing with tears. Esau sinned in despising his birthright and selling it to Jacob. He later wanted to have his birthright back, but he was never truly repentant. He chose a life of rebellion. And so for Esau, there was no way back. His sin had permanent consequences. Sin has consequences. Even where sin is overruled for good, we may have to live with its consequences. But the good news is that sin need not be terminal as it was in the case of Esau if we bring our sin to the Lord in repentance and ask for his mercy. So let's not treat sin lightly. Let's not take God's grace for granted. Let's keep short accounts with him Let's not allow our hearts to become hard and unrepentant. God works with flawed people. His favor is received, not earned. He can use even sin in the outworking of his purposes. But sin is serious and it has consequences. In these episodes in the life of Jacob, I think we see something of what the Apostle Paul meant when he spoke about the goodness and severity of God. Shall we pray? O oh Lord, we read that whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We pray that we may have hearts that are willing to learn the lessons of your word. May we be willing to learn patience and endurance. May we be encouraged by your word. So may we have hope, hope to live in the light of a God who loves us and who gave his son to die for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.